Good morning, church. I'm so happy to see you. And by the way, I uh, known Pastor de Lima for many years. In fact, I knew his father, and back then, Pastor de Lima was a teenager. And it's nice to see how his ministry has flourished through the years. I was thinking this morning about a friend of mine. He's a retired minister, and he was telling me, Eddie, normally when we greet a congregation, he said, uh, we normally say, I'm happy to be here with you this morning. And by the way, my friend that I'm talking about, he's probably about 80 years of age now. He's a retired minister. And he was telling me, normally we say, I'm happy to be here with you this morning. But he said, you know what? At my age, I'm happy to be anywhere. <clears throat> and I hope you feel the same way. It's a blessing to be here this morning in church. This morning, I'm going to be speaking to you about the mission of the church. And normally, when we think about the mission of the church, we think in terms of Matthew verses uh, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. But you know that the, in, in reality, the mission is there. But the context in which the mission is given is found in verses 16 and 17. And we seldom quote these verses in connection with the mission of the church. So we're going to begin there. And notice what verse 16 says. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. By this time, Jesus had already been crucified he had died, he had, had been buried, he had resurrected. He had appeared to the disciples in different occasions. And he was ready to go back to heaven. And notice that he summons his disciples in this mountain in Galilee. But it says that the eleven went to that mountain. But as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find... Twelve disciples. But here it says that the eleven went. Where was number twelve? What happened to number twelve? Judas. By then he wasn't with the disciples no more. He had committed suicide. He had hung himself. And let me tell you, Judas, as the other disciples, had misunderstood Jesus' mission. See, they wanted an earthly kingdom. They wanted to believe that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. And they wanted power. They wanted to be part of this kingdom. And by the way, the disciples as the Jewish nation were tired of the Roman Empire ruling them. See, by then, they had been under the Roman Empire for close to a hundred years. And in their own land, they were treated as second-class citizens. So they were tired of that treatment, and they wanted a kingdom, but they wanted an earthly kingdom. And the disciples wanted power, but Jesus told them more than once, my kingdom is not of this earth. And yet the disciples wanted to continue believing 
that Jesus was going to establish an early kingdom. And that's why they fought among themselves. Who's going to sit at the right hand? Who's going to sit at the left hand of his throne? Because they wanted to have authority, power. They misunderstood God's or Jesus' mission. And they also misunderstood the mission that Jesus had for them. Jesus told them, hey, whoever that wants to be great in the kingdom needs to become a servant. And yet they didn't want to serve. They wanted power. They wanted to be served. I imagine Judas thinking that Sunday morning when Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem and people were proclaiming Jesus king. I'm sure that even in the air, they could breathe something differently. And they said, this is the day, this is the moment when Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. And we're going to be part of this kingdom. But Jesus makes it to the temple and quietly departs from there. Man, the disciples were disappointed, deeply disappointed. Their dreams were vanishing. Their desires of power shattering away. And then Judas thought of a plan B. He said, well, he knew that the uh, priest and the Pharisees wanted to apprehend Jesus, but they didn't want to do it publicly because they were afraid of the nation, of the people. So Judas thought, if I... Tell them where Jesus goes at night. In secret, they're going to apprehend them. And then Jesus is going to be forced to make a miracle to free himself. And when he does that, then the priest will believe in him. They're going to proclaim him king. He's going to establish his kingdom. And then we're going to be part of this kingdom. When that didn't happen, Judas fell in desperation. He recognized that he had sinned. He recognized that he had done wrong. And yet, he thought that he had gone too far. And in desperation, he went ahead and committed suicide. You know that through the years, I've known a lot of people like that. That when they see their own life, they think that they've gone too far in order for God to forgive them. Even church members have told me, Pastor, I wish I could go back on time. I wish I can redo my life all over again. I wish I could avoid the mistakes that I made in my life. And they're haunted by the ghost of the past, things that they said, things that they did that hurt others. And they wish they could go back. I don't know if I'm speaking to you this morning. I just know that there's a lot of people that don't feel forgiven. They come Sabbath after Sabbath to church, and yet they don't feel forgiven. About three years ago, I received a phone call. This young man by the name of Pedro, he was calling me from Guatemala, Central America. He had been watching 3ABN Latino, and 
I have programming that I've done for 3ABN and Hope Channel. So he called the station thinking that I was an employee of 3ABN and that I was going to be at the studios of 3ABN. So they gave him my cell phone number and he calls. And I knew that he was desperate. Something was going on in his life, but yet he wasn't telling me. So I didn't pressure him. I just prayed with him, read Bible promises to him, and that was the end of our call. But then two weeks later, he called back again. And this time, Pedro opened up his heart. He said, Pastor, I grew up in an evangelical home. My family was committed to ministry. Then I got married with a church from the, with a girl from the same church. We were committed to the Lord and to ministry. We had two kids. Once they became teenagers, somehow I started neglecting my spiritual life, slacking off in my spiritual life. Before I knew it, I was tangled up, involved in a homosexual relationship with a co-worker. Now I'm infected with AIDS. And he said, even though I cut off that relationship, but I don't feel that God has forgiven me. I don't think God can forgive me this. I already went too far. I hurt my wife emotionally. I brought shame to my kids. And I knew that I was going on a wrong path. And yet I didn't have the spiritual power to say no. And because of that, I don't think God can forgive me. And then he started talking about suicide. He said, Pastor, th there's no way that I want to continue living this way. At night, I'm quite awake. I cannot sleep at night just thinking of what I did, thinking that, that if I had a chance, I'd go back and redo those things in my life. When I heard this, I said, Pedro, slow down. Then I prayed with him. And I said, read this. And I started quoting a scripture over the phone. One of the verses that I recall reading to him is found in 1 John. where It says, verse 7, chapter 1. I emphasize the last part of the verse. The blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin. And I asked Peter, Peter, what is all? All this all doesn't exclude anything. I said, even the mistakes that you made, God is ready to forgive you for those things. If you recognize that you did wrong, that you need his help, if you seek his help, God is ready to extend his arms of forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace to you. And I said, Peter, even if you decide to reject God's forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace, he will never stop loving you. And Peter started regaining hope. And from there on, every two weeks, we would communicate and talk. I haven't talked to him for a while, but he's doing the best he can under the circumstances that he's in. I don't know. If I'm speaking to you this morning, I don't know if the ghosts of the past are hunting you. All I can tell you that there's no one here, there's no one that is watching this morning 
that is beyond God's forgiveness, love, grace, and mercy. But let me tell you, Judas opted for plan B. Every time that you deviate from God's plan for your life, things will end up well. You're going to be hurting. You're going to hurt others. It's better to follow God's plan. At times, you might think that it's not the best one in your life or career, marriage, family, ministry. But it's always better. Plan A, God's plan is the best plan. Every time that you go for plan B, things will not end up well at the end. And notice verse uh, 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some, what? Doubted. Who doubted? Some of the 11 disciples. It doesn't say who doubted, but it says that some of them still doubted. Can you imagine three and a half years walking with the Lord Jesus, seeing miracle after miracle in his ministry, and yet some of them still doubted. Let me ask you this. Have you ever doubted in your life? I don't know about you. I just know that I have doubted in my own life, in my personal life, in my marriage life, with my family life, my finances, in my own ministry. There has been moments that I have doubted. When, I, when I'm facing a challenge that I don't know how to solve it, and I look for an answer here, for an answer there, and it seems like I'm hitting myself against a concrete wall, and I can see beyond that. And I have wondered, Lord, where are you? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you help me in this situation? Maybe you walked uh, into this church smiling, but in your heart, you're crying because you're facing an issue that from the human standpoint, you cannot understand why it's happening, how to change things. And Pastor De Lima, you can understand this. I enjoy this greeting in Portuguese when I go to Brazil or I meet the Portuguese people because they ask you, Como vai? Tudo bom? And then the answer is, Tudo bem? Or to the bomb, to the bomb. Their life can be shattering to pieces, but to the bomb. Everything is good, right, Pastor? <laughs> He's the greeting, to the bomb, to the bomb. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe it's your marriage. You're facing a marriage issue that from the human standpoint, you don't see the way out. You've done everything you could. There's a lot of marriages in crisis, even within the church. I remember the case of this uh, church uh, lady. She was facing serious marriage issues, and somebody asked her, have you considered putting an end to your marriage? She thought of it for a moment, and then she answered and said, by divorce, never. By murder, every day. And you know, some people just have those <laughs> dysfunctional relationships, and that can take away from you peace and happiness from your life. I don't know if you're facing that. Maybe you're facing an issue with your kids. Man, when they become teenagers, they test your patience, don't they? You know that my wife and I had two daughters, and when they were kids, I had all kinds of sermons 
for the church members on how to grow up teenage kids, how to educate teenage kids. Pastor de Lima, when our daughters became teenagers, I quit preaching those sermons <laughs> because they weren't working for us. <laughs> and boy, that, that can really take happiness and peace from your life. When you, when you see your kids making decisions and you feel impotent, you know that if they continue through that path, they're going to destroy themselves, but they don't listen to you. All you do is pray, but I tell you, it can keep you awake at night thinking of that. Maybe you're facing a health issue, and from the human standpoint, doctors say that there's no way out, no hope. Maybe you're facing a financial crisis, and mathematically, you just don't see the way out. I don't know what you might be facing. All I know that what God has done for others, he can do for you. Because the same way that God loves others, he loves you. And never forget this. God specializes in human impossibilities. And that's biblical, by the way. But I always say God specializes in human impossibilities. If you miss everything that I say this morning, don't forget that. Go home with this thought that God specializes in human impossibilities. God is ready to change the circumstances in your life. Now let me ask you, do you think Jesus knew who doubted among the 11? Yes, he knew. In spite of that, without that, he still included all 11 in the mission, he could have said, well, because you still doubt, you don't go. You don't doubt, you have a calling. I have a calling for you. But he included all 11 with, his, with their doubts, fears, concerns. Why? Because Jesus knew that if they went out and fulfilled the mission, their fears were going to turn into trust, their doubts into faith. And God is ready to do the same thing for you. Don't wait until you don't have challenges in your life in order to serve God. Serve Him, even with fears, doubts, problems that you're facing. And I have discovered that when you put an interest in the needs of others, it seems like your own problems look smaller. They disappear. Now we go into the mission, verse 18. Let me see what time it is, 12, 11, we're, you're still here, we're good. Because I remember Pastor De Lima, when I started in ministry in California many years ago, the first time that I was invited to speak in an English-speaking church, they had music, they had a nice program, but it was 10 till noon when they asked me to come up front to preach. And I asked the pastor, Pastor, at what time should I quit preaching? He said, man, you can go all day long if you want to. The members are leaving at noon. So I'm glad that that hasn't happened here, Pastor. <laughs> They're still here with us. But notice verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What did Jesus say? All the power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Isn't it wonderful to know that we serve an almighty God, Jesus, 
But he has the power to change things in your life, to change circumstances in your life. And notice then verse 19, therefore go and make disciples. Notice that phrase, therefore, is what you call a bridge word or phrase that links the previous sentence with the coming sentence. And in the previous sentence, Jesus said, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth. And because of that, I empower you. Go. And notice, he says, go. That's it. Sound, sounds like, uh, does it sound like uh, an option or like an order, a command? Go. It's an order. And men, at times we pride ourselves of keeping God's commandments. But what about this commandment? Go. You know that uh, some members tell me, Pastor, I don't have the gift of witnessing. The pastor does, the elder does. Maybe the uh, lay uh, personal ministry director does, but I don't. Let me tell you, witnessing is not a gift. It's a, a command. It's an order. Go. So I got news for you. If you use that as a cop-out, you cannot use it no more because that's not a gift. Yes, God has given you gifts, talents that you can use, employ, in fulfilling the mission, but the mission in itself is not a gift. It's an order. Go. And notice, go and make what? Disciples. Notice that Jesus didn't say, go and make church members. He said, go and make disciples. There's a difference between a church member and a disciple. Yes, there is. Can you be a church member without being a disciple? Yes. All you need is your name in the roles in the books of the church, and you're a member, but not necessarily a disciple of Jesus. And the mission is go and make disciples. Now, who's a disciple? I went to the dictionary to webster dictionary to see what it uh, said under disciple and it said something like this under disciple one who accepts and helps to promote the teachings of another so and if you and i are disciples of jesus it means that we have accepted jesus we have accepted his teachings and now we are actively Sharing those teachings with others. That's what a disciple is. Now let me ask you this. Not for you to answer, just to think. What are you based on this definition of disciple? Are you a disciple or are you only a church member? By the way, it has been proven that in the church in general, only about 15% of the members fall under the category of disciples. The other 85%, they're church members, pew warmers. Can you imagine? And even with that, we grow as a church. What would happen 
if more members were committed. This is the first time that I come to this church, and, and I understand that because of COVID, some members are staying home. But I still see spots here that we could fill in with new people. Do you think you need more members in this church, or you don't need any more? Sure. And if I tell you no, what would you say to me? Why do you need more members for? You don't need any more members in this church. What you need more of is disciples of Jesus. Men, women, adult, young, committed to God and his mission and actively sharing Jesus with others. And with of those, we will never have enough because Jesus said that the fields are plenty, but the laborers are what? Few. Dream with me, Pastor de Lima, and let's think that as the pandemic is winding down, and hopefully by the summertime, as we go into July, August, things go back to normal, that every single member of this church becomes a disciple of Jesus. What would happen within this congregation? Just think of it, that every one of you Every church member becomes a disciple. You're praying for someone that you love enough that you want to see in heaven. And you're doing this intentionally, morning, evening, praying for that person. Lord, bless Mary. Come into her life. Give me wisdom to know how to approach her with the gospel. And if you're intentional about that, do you think God is going to give you that, that soul for Jesus? Of course. And the Bible says that God knows how to give us better than what we ask. That means that some of you will bring at least one, some two, three souls for Jesus. But if you brought only that single soul that you've been praying for, what would happen in this church? At least it will double in membership, right? And that would be a good problem to face. We don't have any more space. Either we go to two services, we plant another church, or we'll build a bigger church. Jesus came to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? Of all nations. And when we think of the mission field, we think in terms of Africa, India, some places in Asia, even some countries in Latin America. And we see them as mission fields because they don't have the resources that we have. But let's put this in perspective. About f six years ago, we went to Africa, to Zambia, to hold evangelism with a group of pastors and lay people, the Union Executive, Executive Committee. I ended up in Livingston with another group of pastors close to Victoria Falls. Another group was in Shoma. As soon as we arrived there, I started inquiring about the country, the population. I discovered that they had about 10 million in population, something like that. And they had about 800, uh, close to 800,000 Seventh-day Adventists. Now they have surpassed a million 
Seventh-day Adventists in Zambia. That means that in Zambia, you find one Seventh-day Adventist for every 10 to 12 in population. Now let's bring it home. How many millions do we have in the United States? About 340 million. And how many Seventh-day Adventists do we have in the United States? If you take, a, if you take a Canada, that is part of the North American division, we end up with approximately 1,200,000 Seventh-day Adventists in the United States. That means that in the United States, we have one Seventh-day Adventist for roughly about 320 in population. Zambia one from out of every 10 or 12. Now you tell me, where do we have the greatest mission field, in Zambia or in the United States? United States. The only reason that we see them as mission fields because they don't have the resources that we have. But let me tell you that the greatest resource that God has on this earth is not money, is not institutions, is not buildings. If you had all the money that the richest man has on this earth, which is not millions, it's billions of dollars, did you know that that won't win you a single soul for Jesus? Because money doesn't win souls. And people tell me, Pastor, I tithe, so now the responsibilities of my pastor to win the souls. I give money. But you know that money doesn't win souls. Money helps you to launch programs, activities, but souls are won by other souls that are grateful for what God has done for them, and they become disciples of Jesus. They tell others what Jesus has done for them, what Jesus means to them. See? And Jesus came to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That means that the greatest resource that God has on this earth is you, is you, is me. We are, we are the greatest resource that God has on this earth, and he wants to use us to reach out and then win those souls in our communities. In verse uh, 19 continues saying, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that part of the mission is baptizing. So don't be afraid to invite people to accept Jesus through baptism because it's the way they become disciples. They accept Jesus and then they become a new life, and you can disciple them. And notice verse 20. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Notice that the mission doesn't end when people get baptized. You still continue following up helping them to grow spiritually, teaching them to obey all things, helping them to grow spiritually. 
And as a church, normally we do well when we do public evangelism, even when we do personal evangelism, when we commit to it, because our message is unique. It touches people if we present it the right way. So bringing people into the church is not an issue when we commit to it. The challenge is keeping them in the church. And is the area that we need to do better. And that's why I believe in a small group ministry. Because small groups helps you not only to retain the members that you have, but helps you to win others. That's why at the union, for several years, we've been committed to producing new resources for small groups, lessons, DVDs. Every year, we have a new material. For this year, we produce a series called Resilient Families. It has to do with family relationships, but it has doctrine weaved into it. Small groups retain people in the church, and we need to do a better job it has proven that churches that work through a small group ministry normally have a higher retention rate within the church than those that don't work with a small group ministry. Do you want to grow spiritually? Do you want to help others grow spiritually? Your spouse, your kids, friends, people that you witness to. There's four things that you need to do. Number one, develop a prayer life. There's power in prayer. Number two, feed yourself daily from the word. Number three, attend church on a regularly basis. And number four, tell others what Jesus means to you. You do those four things, you're going to grow spiritually. You help your kids to do those four things, they're going to grow spiritually. I have a prayer list that I've been using it for years, where I pray for churches, pastors, people that I know that need God's intervention in their lives. And every morning, every evening, I pray over those. But then, once I'm done, and I have already prayed in general for my family, I dedicate one day of the week to pray for one member of my immediate family. Like Sabbath, Saturdays, my wife knows that I pray for her. And when she's not with me, I send her a text reminding her how much I'm missing her, how much I love her, and that I'm praying for her that God will do something special, that God will manifest himself in her life in a special way that day in her life. It was a Thursday. I don't know where I was. I just know that I was in a hotel in the morning getting ready to go to a meeting. And I was getting ready to pray for my older daughter, oldest daughter, Veronica. And the Spirit impressed me to send her a text. See, I had been doing it for years and I never had told them about it. So I went ahead and sent her a text and I said, Veronica, I'm getting ready to pray this morning. And I never told you this, but every Thursday I pray for you that God will do something special in your life. Is there something that you want me to intercede for you in my prayer? And she responded, Daddy, Dad, 
pray for me that God will help me to make the changes that I need to make in my life. So I responded with another text. Mija, my daughter, I said, don't worry about making changes in your life. Because see, we suffer with that, don't we? I need to change this. I need to overcome this. And we live miserably. And at times we make others miserable that are around us. I said, don't worry about making changes. Just worry about setting a positive atmosphere in your life in order for God to make the changes in your life. And then I told her those four things. Mija, number one, every day pray, communicate with God. Tell him how you're feeling, what, what you're going through. Just open up your heart. Pour your heart before God. I believe that there's power in prayer. The greatest battles in life are one on your knees. Number two, I told her, every day, read the word. Read something. Even if you don't feel like it, spend a few minutes. Allow God to speak to you through his word. Number three, I told her, go to church on a regularly basis, even if you don't feel like going. Once you're there, things will change. You're going to feel different. Just get there. And let me tell you, don't allow your church to become a Sabbath morning church only. Because a lot of churches are turning into Sabbath morning churches. They don't show up for another activity in church. They don't have time. I remember a seasoned pastor told me something that I never forgot when I started in ministry. He said, Eddie, you don't measure the spirituality of a church based on the attendance of Sabbath morning in the church. The fact that a church is packed on Sabbath morning, that doesn't tell you the degree of spirituality of that church. You know what he told me? Where you measure the spirituality, spirituality of a church is going to be when you show up to their prayer meeting. Show up to the prayer meeting, and there you're going to see if that church is indeed a committed church, a spiritual church, or just a church that goes through the motions. And at times we become 7-Eleven Christians. We show up only the seventh day and at 11 o'clock because don't even show up on time for Sabbath school. Am I speaking to you this morning? I don't know. And at times we show up and we look like boxers. You know, the pastor is preaching and we can hardly stay awake. See the blessings that God has for us. We miss them because how weak, we're so tired, we're pursuing our own things, doing this, doing that, and Sabbath morning comes and our batteries are way down. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, because we didn't take the time to study the word, to pray during the week, to witness to somebody during the week. And we miss the blessings that God has for us. Number four, I told my daughter, tell others what Jesus means to you. Make it a habit. 
to look for opportunities during the day to tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. And if you have that attitude, God is going to give you divine appointments. You might be putting gas to your car. And the spirit is going to impress you to talk to the person that is next to you. And when that happens, it's because that person needs to hear a word of encouragement. At work, any place you go, God is going to give you divine appointments. Believe it. And in closing, last part of verse 20 says, And surely I am with you always to the very end end of the age have you ever have felt lonely I have not I'm surrounded by people but I feel lonely notice that Jesus promises to be with us when always every day even those days when things are not going your way not only when things look good, even those days when you feel that everybody has abandoned you, even God, at times you think, Jesus promises to be with you always. And notice that David, when he wrote Psalm 23, he said, even though I walk through the valley of shadow and death, I will not fear evil. Why? Because you're with me. See, that makes a difference. I have learned in my ministry and in my own life that at times God, yes, will remove the obstacle in your life. At times that will not happen. But God will give you the strength to endure it, to take it. And that makes a difference in your life when you know that even in those days, God is with you. Do you want to guarantee God's presence in your life? In the lives of your kids, your spouse, become a disciple of Jesus. And I tell you why. This promise of Jesus' presence in our daily life is in connection to fulfilling the mission. Because Jesus told the disciples, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth. So now, I empower you, go. Make disciples. And if you do it, I promise to be with you till the end of the age. You want to guarantee Jesus' presence in your life. Become a disciple. Pastor, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to give Bible studies. I don't know how to witness. You know that I discovered in my ministry and in my own life that God, in most cases, doesn't call the prepare. God prepares those that he calls. And if you have that commitment, that desire to serve God, God is going to put in your heart what to do, how to do it. God is going to make that way because, remember, God specializes in human impossibilities. If somebody would have told me when I was a teenager that I was going to be preaching the gospel, I wouldn't believe it because I didn't grow up in a seven-day Adventist home. In fact, my dad died when I was 15, and by then I had been already playing in a rock group. 
And when my father dies, my world came apart because I didn't have any spiritual growth. I hadn't been reared spiritually, even though I had good parents. And man, I was last. And at that point, God put in my path a Seventh-day Adventist family. We used to live in south of San Jose, California, in Morgan Hill, a community about 20 minutes from San Jose. They, they were members of the San Jose Church. And on Sabbath, they would go to church. But during the week, they had a small group in their home. And this couple had 10 children. Can you imagine? Just with the kids, they had enough for the small group. And yet, they would invite people from the community. And I met some of those young people of that family. And I started attending. And when I heard the songs, the prayers, the testimonies, when they studied the Bible, they started giving me hope. And after a while, I started attending the San Jose Church. And I must have been about 17 years of age when I was baptized into the church. And right away, I felt the calling to serve God. But I didn't have the means. I didn't have the possibility. So we witnessed every place we could. We planted a church. So now we didn't go to San Jose. We planted a church in another town next to Morgan, uh, Morgan Hill in Gilroy. And then as soon as I became, I was 18 years of age, I became a literature evangelist to earn money. God bless me. I was able to witness to a lot of people. I was attending the local college in the mornings, and I was canvassing in the afternoons. And I told, tell you, if somebody would have told me that I was going to be doing this, I would have laughed at them. But thank God for that family that God placed on my path at the right time. And you know that that family paid a very high price for having invited me to the small group. In fact, they're still paying. 46 years after that, they're still paying because I end up marrying their youngest daughter, Angie. <laughs> she's, she's from the Gonzalez family. So they pay dearly for inviting me to the small group. I'd like to pray for you this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your challenges are. I just know that God specializes in human impossibilities. Even with your fears, your concerns, your doubts, serve God, become a disciple. If things were different, I would ask you to come up front and join me here to pray for you. But where you're at, just raise your heart to God. And I like to pray, would you like to be a disciple? Ask God, God, make me a disciple. Put in my heart how I need to serve you. Whether I need to open up a small group at home or support somebody that has a small group or give personal Bible studies, but show me how I can be useful. Show me how I can become a disciple. And if you commit to God, he's going to commit to you. And get ready because God is ready to answer that prayer for you. Raise your hand if you want me to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you because you're a good God. We thank you because in spite of our shortcomings, you're patient. Because you don't see what we are now. You see what we can become when we surrender, when we give everything to you. 
when we decide to serve you. Oh, Father, we ask you for forgiveness because uh, as a whole, as a church, we have neglected the mission. And even then, you had blessed us. But we know that you're a God of second opportunities. And we want to commit to serving you. Help us to focus ourselves in the mission, not in the things of this world, not on those things that distract us, that, that occupy our time. You always have taken care of your people when they have decided to serve you. So help us to make that commitment. Bless each person in this church. Bless those that are watching at home, that your blessing will reach them all the way there. Bless Pastor De Lima. Use them as you have used them in the past. Continue blessing his ministry, enhancing his ministry. And Father, give us the joy of seeing souls coming at the foot of the cross as a result of our witnessing as a result of our discipleship. Save our kids, because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.